Well, good morning. My name is Jeremy Mullen. Uh, if you see the bio in the back, you'll, you'll notice I'm uh, a campus minister with our denomination. So uh, I'm glad to be here. I know that Michael comes out from New York every once in a while uh, to preach, but uh, Michael's a good friend of mine. and you'll, You may meet my wife and my two kids wandering around here somewhere. But uh, I'm glad to be with you this morning. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 4. Uh, John Calvin, the great 16th century theologian, called the Psalms an anatomy of the soul. In fact, I often, stop, I often think that so many of the doubts people express about Christianity, about it as a kind of moral straitjacket, or about what it means to suffer in a world that God's in control of, you find all of those concerns voiced right here in the Psalms. Uh, scripture itself speaks so clearly to so many of these issues. Uh, and we're, so we're going to look at Psalm 4 this morning. It's printed in your bulletin. Let's, let me read it for us. This is Psalm 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you... Love vain words and seek after lies. Say love. That's just a musical notation. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Say love. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who, who say... Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let me pray as we start. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you haven't been silent, but you've spoken to us. So even this morning, we pray that the meditations of all our hearts and the words of my mouth would be honoring and pleasing to you. That you would work with the power of your spirit to make the gospel of Jesus clear. That we might know you more deeply as a loving father. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the features of this psalm is to talk about sleep comes up a couple of times here. It comes up a couple of times throughout the Psalms. Psalm 127 is a well-known, has a well-known line about God giving his beloved sleep. And I'm told the old family physicians, I've never been asked this by a doctor myself, I'm, I'm told they used to ask you, how are you sleeping? Because it's a good litmus test for a number of different things going on in your life. And sleep is so important, we know this, even though in a lot of ways we don't know, there's still a lot of mystery about sleep and why it's important, why we have to sleep. Uh, but we know that if you don't sleep, you start to lose it. I mean, I had a, I had a, I was in the Navy for four years after college, and I remember pulling a 40-hour day one time, and by the end of it, I could barely talk, you know, I could, I could barely communicate clearly. Uh, I was just so exhausted, I couldn't think straight. It, Nothing was working, right? And if you've known anybody that has serious sleep problems, you know, it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a waking nightmare. 
Uh, we hate it. We love and we love sleep, don't we? I mean, I, I think the older you get, the more this is true. There's there's a comedian, Jim Gaffigan. Uh, he has this he has this line. He says, uh, "Bedtime makes you realize he has five kids, by the way, and lives in Manhattan somehow. I don't know how this works, but uh, it says bedtime makes you realize how completely incapable you are of being in charge of another human being. My children act like they've never they've never heard of sleep before. Bed? What's that? No, I'm not doing that." They never want to go to bed. But every morning when I wake up, my thought is, when can I get back here? <laughs> it's the carrot that keeps me motivated. Sometimes going to bed feels like the highlight of my day. And he goes on for a bit. Um, you didn't come for a stand-up routine. You came, you came to hear about the Word of God. But, uh, but the thing about sleep is, you know, aside from, aside from maybe some folks who physiologically uh, suffer most of us can't sleep because we're worried. We worry. And isn't that the, isn't, that's what keeps you up at night. Occasionally I decide to have a cup of coffee after dinner or something like that, and that keeps me up. But most of the time, when I'm up at night, it's because I'm worried. Uh, there's something about being in your bed, right, and everything's quiet. Because I can shut out my concerns for most of the day. I, you know, I, I, go to, I go to work on the subway in Boston, so I, you know, I can put my headphones in, and I'm kind of in my own world doing my own thing. I can go through most of the day. Even when I'm home, because I have little kids, I can you know, easily not be thinking about the things that are uh, in the back of my mind. But when I'm in bed, when it's quiet, is when the worries come. When I can't keep at bay any longer those things that I'm worried about. And there's other psalms that cover other terrain. Psalm 4 is actually a little bit, it's not one of these really well-known psalms. If you look at Psalm 3, you get, you get this theme of, of kind of foes, these enemies of God that are pressing in on the psalmist, right? It's visceral and it's immediate. The need for God to deliver him. And if you look at the next psalm, Psalm 5, it's a lament. It's that powerful genre in the Bible that holds together these two realities, right? That this situation is terrible. And I'm suffering, and yet somehow God is good. It's, it's that powerful kind of mix. But this psalm is right in the middle. And this is not about the things that you feel like, I can't even get through this day if it doesn't get dealt with. It's about those things that we just leave on the back burner all the time. Those things that keep us up at night. And, you know, we often talk about stress. What am I stressed at? Like, I'm, I'm stressed out. But that's vague, right? Because that's just a physiological description. I'm, I'm, I can be stressed about a lot of different things. What would be really powerful is if we actually admitted what we're worried about. If I could actually be honest with my wife when I'm worried. If I could be honest with my close friends that I'm worried. And this is what the psalm speaks to. So I want, I want us to show, I want to show us how this, on the one hand, sets a different perspective on our worries. But then also speaks to a couple of the more troubling results of worry. So let's start by thinking about how it gives us perspective. Notice in verse 1 uh, through 3, it's sort of setting the stage here for the rest of how the psalm unfolds. Answer my call. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. 
You've given me relief. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. So he's calling out to God. And then in verse 2, you hear why he's calling out to God. Uh, Oh, men. So he switches who he's speaking to. Uh, How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? In other words, for some reason, he feels like he's being put to shame. And we'll think about what these vain words and, and, uh, and seeking after lies means in a second. But, uh, but he's got a problem. Something he's worried about here. And then in verse 3, he says, but no. And here, I think he's speaking to himself. <laughs> but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So, in three verses, he's kind of taken, he's taken us through what it means to get perspective on life. What it means to get perspective on our worries. You see, uh, he calls to God. He deals head-on with the lies that are being told by countering with the truth about God. And again, most of this is internal, right? This is him rehearsing this in his head. Rehearsing this to himself. Now, what is this stuff about lie, seeking after lies and uh, shaming, being put to shame, uh, and vain words? And I, I think that at the end of the day, this idea of speaking vanity. In the Old Testament, what we often see this associated with is foolishness. Uh, this is what... This is what the uh, Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes talk about when they're talking about uh, all that happens under the sun. Or, actually, with the book of Ecclesiastes, what it's saying is, imagine that the only thing that there is is what happens under the sun. It would all be vanity. It would all be vain. It would all be purposeless, meaningless. In the New Testament has a different word for this. You call it worldliness. Now again, and you probably know this if you come to church often, I'm sure that, you know, it's talking about this. This doesn't mean that the, the material world is bad or that your body is bad or that having things is bad or that being successful in your career or even, even, even having you know, some wealth is, is a bad thing. No, the, those things are not bad at all in and of themselves. They're not bad. And yet, and yet, what the New Testament, what the Old Testament rises up all over the place is that there is a way of seeing the world and when it's our only horizon, that's a problem. In other words, if, if the only thing that we imagine really matters or is really going on is what we can see around us. they got dog-eat-dog realities of life. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. That if we think that Ultimately, reality is about getting in to the next program, getting into that, getting that next job, and getting ahead. Then we're living by what's called worldliness. And that, I think, it puts the, the shaming into context here. You know, there's a philosopher called Charles, named Charles Taylor. He wrote this book, A Secular Age, which is an enormous tome. But, uh, but he, he traces this, this question. Uh, why is it that 500 years ago, most people would have thought it inconceivable to, to not believe in God? And now, 
plenty of people find it inconceivable to believe in God. And what he does is he traces out over kind of 500 years of Western history and philosophy and all this other stuff uh, a notion that he calls the imminent frame. That we live in the imminent frame. And in other words, we live in a world that we think is disenchanted. In other, this world doesn't seem to ever interact with anything spiritual. All there is is my biochemistry. All there is is my experiences and the way that they've affected me. It's, it's all ultimately just the laws of physics and chemistry and biology at work. I mean, this is, this is all it is. This is all that life is. Uh, it, it means that we think that we are essentially able to master ourselves and manage the world around us. You can, do, you can be a little more conservative about that and think primarily in terms of individual responsibility. Or you can be more liberal about it and think about kind of corporate responsibility. But either way, we're thinking about the world as a place that ultimately we can manage. That ultimately, I, we, can, we can take control of this. Our lives are manageable. And yet, and yet, when we live that way, uh, when we think that way, it puts us into this place where we think that if there is a God, then he would have to answer to us when life isn't working out. You see, if, if all that there is is this imminent frame that we live in, <laughs> if all of that we can imagine is this, this horizon of the world, what happens under the sun, if that's all we can imagine, then if God is good, that must mean we must be getting ahead. In other words, that would be the only thing God is good for, is getting us ahead in life. And if that isn't quite working out, in other words, if I find myself worried about my family's finances, if I find myself worried about my career, if I'm worried about, you know, finding a spouse, if I'm worried about where my family is heading and what's going on in my family, then God isn't living up to his end of the deal. That's why David feels put to shame. Because he says he believes in God, and he professes that God is good, and yet things aren't working out. I mean, why would you want to believe in that kind of God? I mean, that, that is, I think, what the vain words, what the lies are that people are speaking to him. And you find that that's the, it's the same old lie, right? It's the lie, it's the oldest lie in the book, because it, that's exactly what the serpent implies back in the Garden of Eden. Maybe God isn't really good. Maybe he's not all that he says he is. But you see, the way that he deals with that, the way that he uh, starts, to, starts to answer back is by reminding himself that, this is verse 3, that he's been set apart by God and that God hears him. And this is just one of the most essential aspects of being a Christian. I think especially in the American context that we have to come to terms with is that God does not always have the same priorities we have. It's simple, <laughs> but, it's, but we, we get all mixed up about it, right? We think that God should have the same priorities we have. We think that God should be just as interested in my career in the plan I have for my family as I am. 
But in fact, God promises something different. He says that instead of living by the rules of the world, we're set apart for something different. We're set apart. In other words, God's got something big in store. And what he has for those who trust in him isn't merely that we get more stuff or that we have better experiences along the way. But that we know him, that we experience him. You could put it a, a different way and say that what so many of us are often concerned about is the be- getting the benefits of knowing God, having peace, joy, love, all, this, all those things that are, sound great, right? Sound great about knowing God. Well, we want to have all those things, but we don't really want to know God. We don't want to invest time in that. We don't want to pursue that. Because that's kind of, I don't know, if you've thought about it, that's a pretty lifelong process, isn't it? To know God. Uh, we say that he is incomprehensible, so it would take, you know, this is a lot of work <laughs> to get our minds around what he is. To actually, and it's more than that, it's to experience him, to know him. Because the thing that we're, we're told we're being made like is God himself. That those who know God, he transforms into his image. Which is a weird thing to say because uh, that would mean we're going to be like Jesus. And I don't know if you've read the Jesus story lately. But is that the life that you have outlined for yourself? It's not mine. I mean, I, you know, I think, I, boy, I'd love to have, you know, a, a stable, you know, stable sort of financial portfolio. I would love to have my children kind of live out a better life than I had. And these, are, these are the kinds of things we dream about, right? And I don't think that's crazy. I think most of us here probably have a lot of those same desires. But Jesus, Jesus gets marginalized. People find Jesus, on the one hand, extremely loving, but on the other hand, very offensive. They find him very difficult to deal with. And where Jesus' life ultimately goes is to the cross. So I think that what, that what happens is we're often so, so stuck on the benefits of knowing God. And we want them without any context of God himself. And we forget that they only flow out of actually knowing him. That the only love that really matters is sacrificial love. That the only joy that really matters is the joy that sustains us in times of evil. The joy that sustains us through difficulty and suffering. The only hope that matters is the hope that there is something greater God has in store for us. We want all of those benefits, but we so often turn them around into something worldly, right? That I want a kind of love in which I can have what you want and you can have what you want and we're happy with each other and yet it's one of the ironies that we think that that can work out and yet we live in a, a worldly way, right? That we're, we think that what matters is the kind of dog-eat-dog realities of life, right? So I can't get ahead if I'm not getting ahead of you. I can't be happy Unless I've got more than other people. 
unless my career is going better than others. So, again, I think what we're reminded here is that the priorities of knowing God reshape the priorities we have for our lives. And so much of our worry comes from losing sight of what it means to know God and to be transformed into Jesus' image. Now again, that doesn't mean you have to, be, you have to lose all your money. That doesn't mean you have to lose your health. That doesn't mean you have to lose your whole family. But it does mean that we recognize that in God's economy, knowing him is the greatest thing. And being made like Jesus, the kind of person who learns to love sacrificially, who has joy even in difficulty, means that he is going to work on the sorts of things we worry about. That actually, if God is loving, he's going to slowly show us, sometimes a little painfully, what it is that we love more than him. So if you want to know what God is doing in your life, what God is working on, ask yourself what you worry about. And you're on the right trail. And look, we know that worry is bad because it at least produces two results that are not so pleasant. Anger and despair. And think, about, think about anger with me for a minute. This is, this is verse 4 and 5. Be angry... And do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Did you hear that? Be angry and don't sin. I don't know what, I, I, I have a hard time imagining what it would be like if I was angry without sinning. Uh, do you? I mean, am I alone in this? I think, I think this is one of these things that uh, is so weird because I think that most of us think that if you're going to be a proper kind of religious person, you just would never be angry. But that's not what the Bible tells you. The Bible tells you you can be angry. But be angry in the right way. I think that's the trick, right? Uh, the, what, the, what being angry in the right way does is exposes our hearts. Think about this with me. When I was in the Navy, I had an executive officer who did not like me very much. I didn't like him very much, so it was mutual. But, uh, uh, but of course, he outranked me. <laughs> and it was fine for most of my time there, but this was the, my second tour. And I was get, about six months before it was over, I announced that I was getting out of the Navy. Well, then he really did not like me and did everything to make my life miserable. Uh, now, what happened was, I was, as I was worrying about this, I would go to bed, and of course it was on my mind. And what I would do is rehearse like conversations or interactions I'd had. Do you ever do this when you're worried about something, especially interpersonal? Right? Is I, I, you go to bed, and, you're having this con- and you, review, you review the conversation you have with that person, right? And you think, I can't believe they said that to me. Or, oh, I should have said that, right? You ever, you ever have a zinger? You're like, oh man, that, that would have showed him. If I, had, if, I had, if I had had that line right there on the tip of my tongue, right then, I would have shut him down. 
Do you, do you remember that, that Seinfeld episode where George Costanza, George Costanza is in a, a, a meeting and uh, he's eating all the shrimp, uh, the shrimp cocktail, and, and some guy just kind of makes a joke at his expense. And he comes back and he's telling Jerry about it like he always does. And, and, then, he, and then he realizes he should have had this zinger about the jerk store. It, it's a terrible line. It's, a, it's, a, it's an awful zinger. It doesn't really good. But then he even goes and tries to like set up the situation again so that he can use his zinger. Uh, but, but, isn't that, isn't that, but you imagine that too. Right? You imagine scenarios. Don't tell me you don't. That, oh, if I could only have this conversation, then I'd really be able to sort things out or sort that person out. Right? If, I, if I could only engineer this conversation, boy, wouldn't that be great? And you know what's so common about, about these worries? I'm always talking. I am. I'm always talking. I don't shut up. There's always, what kind of zinger can I have? What kind of... How can I? And when I have like a conversation with that person, like an imaginary conversation with that person, it's not a conversation; it's a monologue, right? I'm, it's a diatribe about all the things that they've done wrong. But this, but, but this kind of anger is something different. You see, you know that you've got the wrong kind of anger when you're always the one talking, when you're always the one that's in the right. By contrast, now listen, actually, this is, this is an important point here. This does not mean that if you've experienced something hurtful, you can't be angry about it. This doesn't mean telling lies about evil things people have done to you. Actually, this is giving you free reign to be completely honest about that. But so many of our interactions, what we take away is this sense of our own personal righteousness, our sense of our own personal goodness in the face of what this other person did to me. But the right kind of anger is able to say, what, 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 what did I contribute to this situation? What did I do that made this worse? What could, instead of what could I have done to get, to find the right zinger, what could I have done to bring healing? What could I have done, what, what could I have asked, apologized for, asked forgiveness for? What could I, what could I have done differently? You see, because he talks about bringing right offerings in verse 5. And putting your trust in the Lord, that, that little term, right offerings, uh, it comes up again in the Psalms in Psalm 51. Now, some of you will know Psalm 51 is, is one of the great Psalms of repentance. He talks about bringing right offerings to God, and when he talks about his heart, he talks about being, having a broken spirit and a contrite heart. In other words, what, what it means to have the right kind of anger means that I'm... Telling, that I'm telling a different story about this situation. I am no longer locking horns with this person, but I'm giving God the last word. I don't have to, I don't have to do all the talking. I don't have to be the one who sets everything right in the world, especially my own life. 
But I let God do the talking. I let God have the last word. Again, we can be crystal clear about the, the awful things that have been done to us. Those things that do keep us up, worrying. I can be clear about when people have done me wrong. But on the, on the same token, I stop and say, well, maybe I wasn't totally innocent in this either. And just, and just like our own forgiveness, we need God to have the last word in it. We need God to speak. And think about this last, this last result. Is, is a kind of despair that sets in when worry becomes chronic. This is verses 6 and 7. Now, there are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. So, in other words, who will show us some good? Apparently nobody is. At least that's what they think. And what's, it's, it's really curious, this next line, he says, Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. This is what other people are saying, which that's a biblical prayer. One of the most famous benedictions has a line almost exactly like that in it. It sounds, in other words, it sounds very pious. But what you discover in the next line, in, in David's comment on it, you discover what they really think. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In other words, what they're saying is, we'll only know that you love and care for us when everything's going well. In their case, when the harvest is great, when the wine is flowing, they'll know it's going well. But David is saying, but you've put more joy in my heart than any of those things could bring. You see, it's a kind of despair that sets in when we worry all the time. You may know this. Uh, certainly if you spend a lot of time around, around the poor. Especially in neighborhoods that, are, that have just been kind of locked in systemic poverty. There is a kind of despair about the possibilities of ever getting out of that. That sets in. And you see it in children. They don't think it's possible to get out. You see it in families where the same kinds of issues keep arising every generation. This is just how, I guess this is just how our family is. You see it in, you see it in the, a marriage. After a while, you just stop. You get so worried, you know, you've been worried about what's going on between the two of you. And after a while, you just say, well, I guess that's just how it is. That is what it means to despair. This isn't depression. This is the kind of low-grade but persistent tone in the background of your relationships. That things only get so good. They're not going to be any better. There's a line in uh, The Fellowship of the Ring... You know, from the Lord of the Rings. I, I don't think it's in the movies, but uh, but they're talking about what what they're what they're going to do with this ring and how they need to take kind of desperate measures to destroy it. But somebody says, as they're debating this, that isn't that despair? And Gandalf has this line, and this is a good definition of it. He says, "It's not despair, for despair is only for those who see beyond, who see all ends beyond doubt." You see, when you worry for long enough, that's it, right? You've, are, you've, you've seen the end of it. There's no doubts in your mind. 
This can't be any different. And the truth of the matter is that there might be some circumstances of your life that are going to be like that, that aren't going to change. Or they're, or they're going to take a very, very long time to change. So there's a little bit of truth in this. There is. There is. I, I think that you know, we have to be honest about it. There is some truth in this. And yet, and yet, what God is saying is that to despair is to miss the point. And this is, to some extent, back to that idea of having perspective. To have perspective means we see that, well, maybe God is working in our lives differently. Maybe what God is going to bring is something bigger than a change of our circumstances. Maybe what God has for you is something that, you know, all the money in the world wouldn't bring. That the greatest family in the world wouldn't bring you. It's himself. And you see why the most mature people in the world are always people who've suffered. Isn't that a weird thing? Isn't that a curious, isn't that a curious thing how the people who are the most mature seem to be people who have who've dealt with extreme difficulty? And it's because they're able to say, this circumstance is not the most important thing. And, and when you have that, by the way, when you have that perspective, you can actually get to work on some of those circumstances that you can control or you can start to change without investing everything in it and defining your life as a failure or success based on whether all that works out. And that's a curious thing, right? That when you actually have perspective you, on, on an issue, you can deal with it a lot more. Easily. I mean, it, it, any of you who've been in business know this, right? Is that if you get too myopically focused on one thing, right, you lose sight of what you're doing. You lose sight of your goals. And that is exactly the kind of perspective that's brought to this. And so the psalm ends this in this interesting way. He says, He's been talking about all his worry, but he says at the end, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And I guess maybe to think about the safety, the security we have in God brings up that big question that's been lurking behind this whole sermon. How do you know? How do we actually know God is good? How do we actually know that he delivers on this kind of, this kind of weird promise that we're going to know him and be like him? And that will be better than all these other things that we can imagine. Because I, I can imagine a lot. <laughs> How do we know there's going to be better? And, of course, the answer to the peace that God gives us is in what he's accomplished. Now, the psalmist doesn't understand all this so clearly, but what does Jesus do when he comes? but provide for salvation beyond doubt. Not simply that he proclaims it, but that he accomplishes it. When Jesus shows up, he lives a better life than you could live. A better life than I could live. When Jesus shows up, 
He is a, he's a person with so much more joy and love and hope than I've ever had in my life. Even though he was poor, even though he suffered, even though he was misunderstood and, and ultimately killed for it. But he's also raised for it. He's also in heaven at God's side for us. And that's the narrative arc, right? It's not that Jesus just disappears. I mean, it's that he's actually with God the Father now. As one hymn puts it, pleading the merits of his blood. In other words, saying, we, God the Father and God the Son, are obligated because of what I've done. We will not let them go. We can't let them go. Because I have paid for this in my blood. And in other words, all those things we worry about, a, a different angle on this would be that all those things we worry about, right, they can't really bear up the worry that we put on them. Let's say it's your career. How fragile is your career? It depends, right? But it's pretty fragile, right? Uh, enough people kind of badmouth you, maybe one awful boss. Maybe a downturn in the economy, and you could be, your career could be over. Your finances, how stable are your finances? Hey, maybe some of us more stable than others, right? But I started this job in, <laughs> in 2009 after the, the market crashed, and I remember talking to a lot of people who were very scared about their financial situations. I mean, how fragile is that? How fragile is your family? Like if you're a parent. Every once in a while, you get those moments where you're just like, I'm kind of a monster. And it's a good thing my kids aren't that messed up. Or maybe your kids are messed up. Maybe you're the messed up kid. Right? It's fragile. All these things. We, and, and look, even if they don't crumble under that, even if they, like, we don't get to see them crumble, Ultimately, they don't give that kind of meaning to our life anyway. I mean, your family may work out okay. Your career might pan out okay. Your finances, you might retire comfortably and be all right. All that stuff might be okay. But what's, what about that nagging feeling? I mean, what is a midlife crisis anyway but the, the realization that all this stuff doesn't matter as much as I thought it did? But Jesus can bear up the whole meaning of the universe. You can't crush Jesus with the weight of his significance. You can't, in other words, you can't imagine Jesus is more significant than he is. I mean, look, Jesus is indestructible. Quite literally, he's indestructible. He rose from the dead. What are you going to do to this guy, right? I mean, the, 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 but, but of course, he's God himself, right? He, he cannot be something more significant than that. And it's God himself who comes for you. Who spilled the blood of his son for you. Who holds out now for you the heart of a father. What are you worried about? Maybe, maybe he's teaching you to trust in other things. Maybe what he wants most of all is that you trust in him as a father. That you have confidence because he sent Jesus for you. 
And that that same power of the Spirit that resurrected Jesus is at work in your life. Amen. Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts to allay our fears. To change uh, the things that we worry about and the opportunities to see how we can love you more. How we can become more like your son. How we can take our anger and let you have the last word. And even in our recognition of the evil that others have done, we can learn to love. And in our despair, that we can give it to you and learn to hope. Learn to see that beyond all other ends is ultimately the love that you have for us. Demonstrated, enacted in the life of Jesus. We praise you for it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.